2: I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's <laughs> <question>. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pody and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program.
1: Good morning, Tom.
3: How you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right.
0: Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program.
4: Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
3: Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the uh, second hour of our three-hour tour here on the Tom Sumner Program. Uh, Interesting conversation last hour with Mark Rickling, and uh, thanks again to Mark Rickling uh, from the... uh, uh, organization, uh, the Americans for Tax Fairness, talking about their uh, study about billionaire wealth and how much it's grown during the pandemic. We're going to be talking, uh, coming up after the first break this hour, with uh, Barbara Fries who um, is an environmental attorney and former uh, Minnesota Assistant Attorney General. And um, she has a new book called Denial which talks about uh, different industries and, and uh, let's see, Corporate Deception and Defending the Indefensible is how the book is described. We'll talk with Barbara about that coming up in just a little bit, but as uh, Mark Rickling mentioned toward the end of our conversation last hour, the uh, presidential debates, or the first of the uh, planned three debates between uh, President Donald Trump and his uh, democratic challenger former vice president joe biden uh, airs tonight on uh, various uh, television outlets and uh, i don't know if you uh, are one who enjoys watching the debates but i think this is going to be an interesting to watch interesting one to watch to be sure and uh, to sort of get in the mood for uh, tonight's presidential debate i thought it might be fun to revisit some memorable moments from past debates and i have about a dozen here and uh, I, I i hope you enjoy
2: these i think mr nixon is an effective leader of his party i hope he would grant me the same mr nixon would you like to comment on that statement i have no comment now in his news conference on august 24th president eisenhower was asked to give one example of a major idea of yours that he adopted his reply was, and I'm quoting, If you give me a week, I might think of one. I don't remember. Well, I would suggest, Mr. Van Oker, that uh, if you know the president...
3: There is no Soviet domination of Eastern Europe, and there never will be under a Ford administration.
2: Uh, I'm sorry, could I just pause Did I understand you to say, sir, that the Russians are not... For this
5: microphone, Mr. Steve. We have a question right here.
0: Yes, how has the national debt personally affected
4: each of your lives?
2: I think the national debt affects everybody. Uh, obviously, it has has a lot to do with interest rates. It has.
4: She's you, saying you, you personally, on a personal basis. How has it affected you? Has it affected you personally?
2: Well, I'm sure it has. I love my grand- grandchildren. I want to think how? that. Th- are you suggesting that if somebody has means, that the national debt doesn't affect them?
5: Well, what I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm
2: not sure. I get it. help me with the question. I think
5: she means more the recession, um, the economic problems today the country faces well, rather listen, than the debt. You
2: ought to be in the White House for a day and hear what I hear and see what I see and read the mail I read and touch. finally money to his wife's law firm for state business. That's number one. I don't care what you say about me. But you ought to be ashamed of yourself for jumping on my wife. You're not worth being on the same platform. I tell as my you something, wife. Governor. If Kitty Dukakis were raped and murdered, would you favor an irrevocable death penalty for the killer? No, I don't, Bernard, and I think you know that I propose a death penalty. Admiral Stockdale, your
3: opening statement, please, sir.
2: Who am I? why am I here
3: <laughs> I will put Medicare and Social Security in a lockbox I will put Medicare in an ironclad lockbox I'd be interested if this e- if he would this evening say that he would put Medicare in a lockbox the governor will not put Medicare in a lockbox by the year 2012 I think we need to put Medicare and Social Security in a lockbox. I think it should stay in a lockbox.
2: I guess my answer to that is the man's running on Medicare. Thanks. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the... Uh... This is an attack piece. That is not by my campaign. What's well, says paid for by John McCain?
4: They seem to like Barack Obama more. Well, that hurts my feelings. <laughs> sorry, Senator. I'm sorry. But I'll try to go on. <laughs> I don't think I'm that bad. Um, uh, you're likeable no. enough. Thank Hillary. you, so no.
2: <laughs> And I will tell you, it's three agencies of government, when I get there, that are gone. Commerce, education, and the, uh, uh, what's the third one there? Let's see. So,
1: com- you
2: need five. Oh, five, yeah, okay. So, five. commerce, education, and uh, the. Um, uh, uh, EPA? EPA, there you go. No, okay. But let's talk, <laughs> talk deposition. Seriously? Uh, Is EPA no, the one you were talking about? Or?
3: No, sir. No, sir. We were talking about the um, agencies
2: of government. EPA needs to be rebuilt. But There's you no can't, doubt about but that. But you can't name the third one? The third agency of government, yeah. I would, I would do away with the education, uh,
3: the, uh, <laughs> commerce. I, I, the commerce, and let's see, I can't. The third one, I can't. Sorry. <laughs> In a similar time frame, raises for CEOs up more than 200 percent.
5: Sorry.
2: <laughs> I'm watching the debate, and she disappeared. Where did she go? Where did she go i I know where she went. It's disgusting. I don't want to talk about it. no it's too disgusting. Don't say it it's disgusting. let's not do. We want to be very, very straight up okay
3: Yeah, that was just a uh few memorable moments from uh. Uh, going all the way back to the Kennedy-Nixon debate from uh, various presidential debates, primary and uh, general. Uh, that's just kind of a warm-up for tonight's debate between uh, Joe Biden and President Donald Trump. Uh, in the meantime, um, we've got coming up Barbara Fries, and uh, we're going to hear a little, little music in honor of our conversation with Barbara Fries and also with Mark Rickling earlier this morning.
0: God bless the child that God is his own, that's God
2: Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
5: I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive, and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters.
4: Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun.
3: We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now.
5: The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker
3: or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home.
5: Stay home. Stay safe. Save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Town Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tom Sumner program celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan.
2: Remember those fabulous 60s? The Marches, the Beans the draft card burnings, and best of all, the music. Well, now Apple House has collected the finest of those songs on one album called Golden Protest, performed by the original artists who made them famous. you will thrill to Society's Child by James Ian. Pleasant Ballet Sunday by The Monkees. What Have They Done to the Rain by The Searchers. In the Ghetto by Elvis Presley. Silent Night, 7 o'clock news by Simon and Garfunkel. And who can ever forget this all-time classic... Yes, it's Barry McGuire's Immortal Eve of Destruction. And of course, my own Masters of War, all for the incredibly low price of $3.95. And if you order now, you'll also receive a treasury of acid rock featuring Vanilla Fudge, Blue Chair, Frigid Pink, Moby Grape, The Electric Prunes, Jeff's Airplane, Lotharing Hand People, to name but a few. Plus, as part of this special limited offer, you also get the best of the supergroups with Traffic, Cream, Blind Faith, Ginger Baker's Air Force, and many, many others. Yes, this is a collector's dream, cold in protest, plus two fabulous 60s albums, all for only $3.95. If you were to purchase these selections separately, they'd cost you hundreds of dollars, and many cannot be found anywhere at any price. Well... It's time for my boot heels to be wandering, But here's something that'll tell you how you can get this amazing record package. Here's how to order this amazing record package. Just send three ninety five and check your money. Order plus your name and address to Apple House, Box 70K, South Bend, Indiana. Once again, that's three ninety five and check your money to Apple House, Box 70. Do it today. The Tom Program.com
1: The Tom Sumner
4: Program.com This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
3: Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, My guest this hour asks uh, the question, how far will industry leaders go to protect their bottom line? In a newly published uh, book, Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible. She is an environmental attorney and former Assistant Attorney General for the great state of Minnesota. She joins me now by phone. Her name is Barbara Fries. Barbara, welcome to the show.
4: Well, thank you, Tom.
3: Um, the book, Industrial Strength Denial, uh, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible. I, I couldn't help asking myself, in this day and age, what is considered indefensible? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well um I, and I, I don't mean to say. be so
3: silly about it but but I just wonder you know we we accept so many things now that as as being just the way we do
4: it you're you're absolutely right and and it is very hard to shock anybody these days um but as far as the the eight campaigns that I chose they were cases where the the facts in question were so uh, clearly um, uh, solved by science or or by the evidence available. So I didn't really look at anything that was a close call. Uh, and so I look at, for example, and, and was it was it, it all slavery.
3: was it all business or corporations, or did you include some uh, uh, government agencies and?
4: It's almost all just the industries that are okay. quoting.
3: Okay, um, yeah. that's, yeah, that's yeah. why Flint didn't make the list.
4: Uh, <laughs> yes, that's, that's right, <laughs> to the extent that we're talking about government make seasons there. That's not a list. Though I do look at the leaded gasoline industry, so there's plenty of uh, defense of putting this known cumulative poison into the fuel supply, which, and of course, poisoned generations of people.
3: Well, and and lead was the miracle metal back in the oh, '30s, it, and and um, it was well, uh, it was
4: considered a, a gift of God, and, and called that by the industry when they were putting it into the fuel supply. Though at the same time, it was understood even then to be a cumulative, subtle brain poison, and so there was there was quite a dispute back even in the 1920s about whether this this. Toxic substance should be put into the fuel supply. Uh, the industry. This is actually discovered by GM. Um, and it wasn't bonded. just fuel; it uh, was
3: in paint. It was in all kinds of things.
4: Oh yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, if I actually had to think really hard, do I want to do a chapter on leaded gas or or lead paint? Um, but I, I ended up choosing the gasoline. But uh, yeah, there were a lot of lead exposures, and and what happened was the leaded gasoline industry really dominated the scientific study and sort of convinced the world that really high lead levels in the blood were perfectly natural and harmless. And it took a lot of outsiders to get involved to say, that is not true, it's not natural, it's certainly not harmless. And that led to a movement that that got the lead out of the gasoline and out of the paint and out of the cans. Canned food uh, had lead solder, uh, and a lot of other sources. So it, it really took quite a lot of pushback.
3: Um, and and what were some of the other examples um, of of things that you would consider indefensible? And then we and well, we also sales- have to add into that um, because I, you already uh, made reference to um, based on scientific evidence. And we have an awful lot of people now who don't trust scientific evidence very much.
4: Well, that's, that's true. And, and it wasn't all science denial that I'm writing about, but it's all evidence denial in one form or another. The eight industries, I'll, I'll just go through them real quick that I touch upon. Yeah. One is the slave trade. Um, and I, so I start back in the, in the late 1700s in Britain in particular. I talk also about radium consumption because about a century ago, drinking radium was considered a health fad. Um, Then I talk about uh, basic uh, defensive unsafe automobiles by the auto industry, Uh, leaded gas, as I mentioned, Um, the defensive chlorofluorocarbons, which we now know deplete the ozone layer, Um, of course, the tobacco claims that for, for decades denied that there was any harm in smoking. Um, And I also look at Wall Street and its defense of the housing bubble and the various financial instruments that led up to the financial crash of, of two thousand and eight. And I end with the fossil fuel industry and its denial of the climate crisis
3: in in researching this and and this is kind of uh, a little bit out of the left field, but um, I think we all know stories like the tobacco industry and others that, you know, denied any harm for decades and and put up big campaigns to, to try and um, um, at least glamorize the product to the point where people didn't pay any attention to the evidence they were hearing. But mm-hmm. did you come across companies that were actually um, doing the right thing? That they would discover there was a problem with something that they were doing that that was profitable, that they could do differently and perhaps still be profitable?
4: I'm sure there are examples of that. I I just wondered if you came across a few. Yeah, not exactly. I did come across one situation where the industry finally saw enough evidence of harm and ended up deciding not to uh, produce their product anymore, but that was also that was basically the chemical industry when the ozone hole emerged from Antarctica, and the evidence eventually linked it very strongly to chlorofluorocarbons. Um, but the chemical industry wasn't dependent on chlorofluorocarbons. That was just one of their products, and they could phase it out, especially knowing that they were about to get it phased out for them by law, and they could replace it with other products that they could sell. So I you know I really am looking at eight industries that are, that caused enormous harm and and denied it for well and the decades. chemical
3: industry um, still had PFAS to make
4: oh they had plenty of other <laughs> chemicals that were, were uh, going to pose dangers that they could deny so that wasn't going to be a problem
3: um and and so um the the chemical uh, industry was one what were some of the
4: others Well, in a couple of cases, you found industries that eventually accepted that they were causing the harm they'd been denying for decades, but then decided that they would just continue to sell as much of their product as possible. Tobacco is the main example there where, you know, decade after decade, from the 50s up to the 90s, the the tobacco executives would say, first of all, that there was no real proof that their product was harmful. But they would also say, if it was proven to be harmful, we would stop selling it because we are a moral company. I mean, claims of that sort were really common. And then finally in the 90s they started to realize they didn't even need to claim that and some of the executives started to admit well of course we're going to sell it anyway um, as long as it's legal to sell so around 2000 and beyond and, and there were lawsuits prompting uh, more admissions at this point the the tobacco executives started to agree the main tobacco companies started to admit yes Uh, Our product does, in fact, kill lots and lots of people, and it's addictive. Um, But that did not in any way diminish their enthusiasm for selling the product. I think we are starting to see something similar now among the big oil companies when it comes to climate change. ExxonMobil, for example, spent decades questioning the science, trying to raise doubts about it. Now they they not only accept the scientific basics, which is that their product is among those really driving this dangerous uh, warming, Um, but they claim to support the goals of the International Paris Agreement, which uh, would require dramatic reductions in global emissions. Um, That, of course, poses a huge threat to their own uh, future. But when they make their own projections about what they think is going to happen, they don't project that they're going to be selling less or producing less oil or gas. They still see a, a pretty rosy future for their industry. So it's a it's a form of acceptance on the one hand with a continuing kernel of denial on the other.
3: I, I've um even seen and I think it was in fact Exxon running uh running television ads um talking about how they've they've redirected their research into looking for sustainable types of energy and then it's like Exxon working for you. You know, that, oh, that, that right. kind of thing. Um, while not changing anything at the pump?
4: Well, they're, I mean, they are trying to reduce their own emissions. But what they have not done, unlike British Petroleum, which is the first oil company that's taken the next step, they have not pledged to reduce their production of oil and gas. Um, and So that's a little bit like you know a tobacco company deciding to put a no-smoking policy in their corporate lunchroom but still <laughs> promoting <laughs> cigarettes as much as possible. I, I think that's sort of where we are right now.
3: Yeah, no smoking, but there's a cigarette machine. Um, there's
4: a cigarette machine, and they're going to try to sell as many as possible to their consumers.
3: Right, exactly. Um, another thing that 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 I wonder about as we're talking about this, Barbara, is the um, this this notion of how far leaders will go to protect the bottom line. Is is there a sense that um, how ugly did some of these things get?
4: Well, you know, if you go back to the slave trade, it doesn't get much uglier than that. Um, and I, the way I try to look at this is to look at the whole range of denials from the most blatant lies to the more subtle self-deceptions. Um, so depending on whether you consider... Um, you know, a good old-fashioned lie uglier than than a kind of sinister deception. Um, that, that makes us a little bit of a hard question to ask. But but obviously, people were, you know, the slave trade was a totally respected industry. Uh, Britain dominated it in the late 1700s when they were confronted with evidence of the brutality of slavery, or, or I should say when the British public was confronted with this evidence. The industry, of course, knew about it. The industry came back and said, we're, we're not brutal. We are actually rescuing these people from Africa. Uh, they want to be uh, purchased. They are enjoying their crossing uh, across the Atlantic on these festive slave ships where they're singing and dancing and eating all this <laughs> delicious food. And, and then they're going to these comfortable plantations, and their lives are much happier than the peasants of Europe. Um, so that I think that gives you a, a sample of just how ugly this can get obviously that was a very long time ago um, but you know when you think about the tobacco industry selling their product uh, you know aggressively marketing it to young kids and they, and there's a lot of evidence of, of that sort of thing you know they are right now in this country uh, responsible it's been linked to something like 480,000 deaths a year globally it's millions of deaths a year so that's getting pretty ugly
3: You mentioned something uh, almost in passing that I wanted to unpack a little bit. That's self-deception. How how does self-deception play into this? And does it excuse anybody from pressing on with uh, uh, racking up uh, dollars on their bottom line?
4: Well, I I try to separate it from the moral judgment, and and I don't think anybody reading my book will think I'm giving anybody a moral pass. But I also try to recognize that rationalization, or we can just call it bias, is an essential part of human nature. And part of my book is looking at uh, the social psychology, in particular. We are, you know, I, I don't come at this with the notion that we're naturally objective unless we're biased and that's morally wrong. I come at it with the assumption that we are all biased when it comes to our own self-interest and our own tribal loyalties and that it takes a lot of work to become objective and if you're not doing that work you're not you're not likely achieving it. So one of the points that I try to make is that the corporation itself as an institution involves a lot of aspects that enhance our natural biases that enhance our natural tribal animosities toward others um, that that reduce our sense of uh, social responsibility. There's division of labor, for example. There's the division of ownership from management, so that you've got shareholders that are far away, managers who are thinking, well, my responsibility isn't to society, it's to my shareholders. You've got a, a powerful, justifying ideology that that has gotten stronger um, in over the decades, at least uh, in terms of influence and policy, arguing that the market can do everything and the government shouldn't interfere with it. Uh, so, so I really kind of look at this as, as a variety of things. And, and, and again, maybe to return to tobacco, you have different kinds of denial. On the one hand, you have the tobacco industry saying, well, th- there is no proof this is harmful. On the other, you have, I actually start the book with a quote from a tobacco ex- executive saying, Who knows what you would do if you didn't smoke? You might beat your wife. You might drive cars (laughs) fast. Um, And and I put that in this category of of this kind of easy rationalization, you know, a self-deception that makes it easier for these folks to sell a product they know is going to kill a lot of folks.
3: You know, I've got one that's even more insidious. For over 50 years, I was, well, maybe not over, but, but nearly 50 years, I was a militant smoker. I liked smoking. Was I addicted? Probably. But, oh, yeah. But, you know, and, until fairly recently. And it really didn't matter to me. I knew what the dangers were. But I liked smoking.
4: Mm-hmm. And, and the industry try, gave you a lot of reasons to continue, and that was one of the things that we saw in the documents that they were working very hard to provide ways to help the smoker overcome their concerns about health and to effectively rationalize what they were continuing to do. And, and of course, the nicotine didn't hurt.
3: But what I'm saying is that I, that there was a there was a market there that. Um, that despite the evidence, even if there hadn't been attempts to cover that evidence or at least mitigate it or minimize it in some way, that would just blast through the warnings and the evidence and and say, I'm going to do this because it's my choice and I like doing it, mm-hmm. um, which, which kind of brings me in a weird path around to this, um, what has a bigger impact on companies changing their behavior, um, regulation or market forces when it becomes popular not to use fossil fuels, um, you know, when it becomes cooler not to smoke, um, you know, yeah. do you know what I mean by that?
4: Yeah, well, I, the way I try to look at this, certainly, well, with tobacco, it's, it's different than fossil fuels. So let me try to answer those differently. Okay. With tobacco, um, you, what we found was that uh, you, we really needed lots of social signals that discouraged smoking in order to go from a world where about 43, 44% of adults were smoking, which would have been in the mid-60s, to a world where more like 14% of adults were smoking uh, today. And that happened through a series of little tiny laws that made it, that discouraged smoking and, and, you know, discouraged the advertising, tried to change the social norm around smoking. So the laws had a, a role, and, and the laws were necessary to push back on the various market forces that were promoting smoking and, this, and the social norms. With climate change, um, you know, the markets can help reduce our emissions, but as long as, for example, there's no price on carbon dioxide, which is true for most of the country, then the markets are blind to continuing to destroy the climate. So in in a case like that, you absolutely need laws because there there uh, there are such market failures that prevent us from addressing the problem.
3: I was watching a movie recently, and at the beginning of the movie, they had, you know, the rating and uh, some cautions about some of the things that were included in the movie, warnings, basically, uh, parental Mm -hmm. warnings or whatever. And it talked about um, violence, sexual situations, uh, fear. Uh, There were a couple others, and I was just stunned. They had smoking.
4: Listed really? as That's one
3: of the warnings, you know, something you were going to see in this movie.
4: Yeah. Uh, well, what's funny here is, uh, or interesting maybe, is that among the ways that the tobacco industry has got smoking to be so popular was when they worked with Hollywood. And, and Hollywood, of course, recognized pretty early that smoking could be quite elegant. It could be quite dramatic. They could use it for all sorts of ways. So uh, cigarettes in movies were promoted by the industry. And I would imagine that when people see smoking, they are it, it does sort of promote the social normalization of smoking. Um, so it may seem kind of weird and extreme to, to see that listed among these other factors. But i would I wouldn't be surprised if there is actually some science that supports that that smoking like if your kids see a movie where everybody's smoking, they might be more likely to pick it up.
3: Well, yeah, if you you know back in the day when you know everywhere you looked, you saw you know um, these these cultural icons, James Bond and the Rat Pack and all of these people mm-hmm. and they were all smoking, and they were all cool, and if I smoke, yeah. I'll be cool too.
4: Exactly. And that's what teenagers and, and most of the people who started smoking did so before they were 18. Um, that's how teenagers view it. And of course, they would be particularly susceptible to peer pressure.
3: Now, I mentioned the warning label on the uh, on movies, but um, how much of an impact do, do regulations requiring labeling like famously with cigarettes, the 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 cautions on the sides of the packs that they had to print. Um, mm-hmm. How much impact does that
4: have on
3: getting companies to change their behavior?
4: Yeah. Well, they those labels don't try to get companies to change their behavior. Of course, they're trying to get consumers to change their behavior. And I think it's it's probable that over time the, the written warnings on the tobacco pack have had diminished impact on on discouraging smoking. What's interesting is a law was passed, uh, I think it was 2009, um, giving the FDA the authority to put pictures on tobacco packs, pictures that are are sort of gruesome representations of the kinds of tumors and things you can get from smoking.
1: Yeah.
4: Um, And uh, other countries have done that. And I think that's been found to be quite uh, effective in other countries. The tobacco industry challenged it, and they said the picture's the, the court decided that the pictures were too likely to evoke an emotional response, sent the FDA back, and, and uh, they've been apparently trying to find more attractive tumors to put on their, their packages. Um, <laughs> so we don't yet have packages. Uh, one one other thing about the, the writing, the written warnings on the packets is that while the industry at the time, and they came about in the 60s, while the industry at the time publicly opposed adding these warnings The tobacco lawyers were actually quite happy because it gave them a new defense to the lawsuits. They could argue that, hey, consumers were warned. They assumed the risk, and that would help them um, avoid avoid liability, and they succeeded on those grounds for decades.
3: We've talked uh, quite a bit about smoking and about uh, gas uh, or, or fossil fuels and, and climate change and, chem- and chemicals, but what were some of the other industries? Um,
4: that well, you as I mentioned, ab- about a century ago there was uh, an industry around radium, um, that, oh, that yeah. is an extremely radioactive element, and there was this kind of mystique around it. It was considered a stimulant, a health stimulant. Uh, the company, the top company that was refining it and selling it, um, actually opened up what they called a free radium clinic in Pittsburgh in 1913. And they would inject people with radium. They would give them radium to drink. Uh, they wanted them to consume radium because if you if you used it, with, if you didn't actually consume it, you didn't have enough demand for their product. So they were, and they were saying that this was something that you could use to treat, you know everything from arthritis to insanity and i mean ultimately it became a part of the something sold to consumers you could get it in toothpaste bath salts and a lot of people would drink radium it was marketed in fact a lot for male sexual dysfunction because it was considered a stimulant and uh, it was put into it was put into rectal suppositories i mean there were many ways to get radium into your body and then eventually, it took some years, but eventually the deaths associated with this exposure became more public. There was one very high-profile uh, industrialist who drank, who had enough money that he could afford to poison himself completely with drinking radium, and uh, his facial bones began to dissolve. This was often the way it happened to people. Died very gruesomely, and that hit the headlines in the 30s, and, and that helped put an end to this fad.
3: More with environmental attorney and author Barbara Fries straight ahead. Hello there, citizens.
0: Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out.
5: alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila!
2: Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Boy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself.
5: A message from the CDC and the Ad Council.
2: In the interest of goodwill, the Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable, it's trustworthy, it's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. But it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange. It's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman steady sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you. Could you be happy?
4: This is U.S. Senator us. Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program.
3: More with environmental attorney and author Barbara Fries straight ahead.
4: Also, radium was used to make glow-in-the-dark paint, and uh, a lot of people are more familiar with the example of the the young women who were hired to put to paint that radium paint onto clock faces and watch dials, and they would... Put the paintbrushes between their lips to to, put, to make a point of the paintbrush, and many of those young women died again, very gruesomely. And uh, fortunately, well, not fortunately, but there was a lot of attention brought to these deaths, and that did finally bring about some regulations limiting it.
3: But that's um, but that speaks to another point. Um, how often was it the case? as with radium, where perhaps it wasn't known what the harms were until they were just stacks of bodies.
4: Right. In in the case of radium, um, I should should stress that they did know at the beginning that, I mean, as soon as it was discovered by the Curies, Pierre and and Marie Curie in 1898, they immediately discovered that this stuff uh, burns your flesh. Um, because they they accidentally burned themselves. And so the they the one thing they knew about this stuff was that it was extremely radioactive, way more radioactive than uranium, and that it killed living flesh. and And so where I, I see quite a bit of denial was this notion that not knowing anything else about this element, they could go ahead and try to you know start injecting it into people and and just assume it was going to be healthy um, so so I certainly consider some denial there I think they they really should have known and and in fact, very early on, they did know that this product accumulated in the body, so this wasn't just some fleeting thing that that they could say was going to be good for you by the way once the the young women started dying their again their facial bones often dissolving or growing these large horrible growths. Um, once the young women painting the dial started dying, the industry that hired them claimed that it wasn't have, didn't have anything to do with the radium, and that these women that they had hired a lot of uh, women who were already sickly, they were hiring cripples out of the goodness of their heart because the work was fairly easy. And when the uh, women's conditions, uh, progressed naturally, they said they were unfairly blamed for their for their earlier kindness. I should point out that by this time, not only did these women have its extremely unusual symptoms of dissolving bones, but they were exhaling radioactivity. They had radioactive breath.
3: wow it's it's just it's hard to even imagine it. And it's one thing, you know, when we start out, we discover new things and, and we think it's a miracle like lead. Um, Ooh. and, and, uh, there've been other things, well, nuclear power. Um, yeah, it, you know, it, it, it has a lot of pluses. It has a lot of benefits, but the negative doesn't have a solution.
4: Well, and, and you have institutions there uh, that have an enormous incentive to celebrate the benefits, and not as many institutions there to investigate and publicize and control the harms. And that's a big part of the problem. I mean, with lead, while it was considered a gift of God to, to put leaded gas I mean, it was called the gift of God by the industry Um, when they put tetraethyl lead into the gasoline supply. Lead itself had been known for a couple thousand years to be a subtle, accumulative brain poison. So uh, the industry really tried to the fact that they were putting lead in the gasoline that's why they called it ethyl they didn't they didn't call it lead a <laughs> gas and they actually tried to uh, keep the those who were talking about it to keep the word lead out of the conversation
3: but again it, it lead was something that was promoted for uh, all kinds of things so we mentioned paint but lead pipes mm-hmm. it was it was considered for infrastructure lead was the new magic Metal that would last for a long time and hold up well.
4: Right, and, it's had it has had a lot of uses, and it, and it's very useful if it just didn't uh, you know poison people.
3: Now you said something a moment ago um, about there being a, a lot of forces on the side of promoting promoting these new products um, as as they're discovered, and even when it's uncovered that they may be harmful, that continue to promote these things, and not as many organizations or not as many resources talking about the negative impacts. Is that changing
4: now? uh i I don't think it really is because um when i'm when I'm talking about the forces promoting the products, I'm talking of course about the corporations and corporate power, corporate wealth you know continues to grow relative, I think to other sectors of our society. Um, it's, you know there are you know, we do have independent scientists working in academia, often funded by the government, but they're frequently under attack uh, by the industries and, and sometimes by government if they don't like the results that they're, they're getting. Um, so, you know, I think it's important that we continue to try to reinforce and strengthen independent science. I would add independent journalism. I mean, certainly we're seeing a crisis in local newspapers and, and other forms of traditional journalism that are declining. Fortunately, there, there are new forms of journalism that may be taking their place, but... Um, you know, th- I, I do feel, especially with respect to climate, and, and I have a personal history uh, with, with respect to working on, on climate issues, but I, I really do think it's, um, you know, we, we really do need to be investing a lot more in regulatory resources, in putting together, in, in funding independent science and journalism, uh, in paying attention to these issues, because it's just so easy for them to get... Um, ignored uh, and and just not be studied the way they need to be
3: would um what prompted you to write this book
4: and Um, to do all the research
3: going into it
4: yeah i'm an environmental attorney and worked uh, at the state of minnesota um, for a number of years when i when i was a young lawyer and started out uh, as an assistant attorney general in minnesota And when I was there, we ended up having a proceeding where we were trying to figure out how dangerous burning coal was for our environment. And we burned a lot of coal and still do burn some in our power plants, like most states. Uh, And we uh, looked at climate change, and the coal industry brought a handful of scientists to Minnesota to testify that climate change was not a problem, and if it happened, it would be mild, and, and we'd enjoy it, and that, in fact... CO2 in the atmosphere was great we should we should actually promote it because it would it's good for the plants they would argue and so and, and and also at the same time they were dismissing the mainstream scientists saying that they were biased politically or financially or in some other sort of vague way by the way the world had already signed the uh, Treaty at the Earth Summit, saying we're going to fight global warming based on the science of all of these really thousands of other scientists. So basically, I was confronted then with climate denial by the coal industry. And in the years that followed, I did a lot of other work uh, related to coal and trying to promote climate policies and whatnot. And so I saw a lot of climate denial over the years, and that really sparked my interest in this as a, a political phenomenon, a social phenomenon, a psychological phenomenon, and uh, started, to got me started wondering, well, to what extent has this kind of industrial denial affected humanity in the past, where, you know, how far from reality has it taken us, how have we gotten past it if we did get past it? uh and, and how is it actually manifested. What did people actually say when they were defending their industries? So I'd really do focus a lot in the book in in specifically looking at the denials and the rationalizations and, and quoting the industry members to to uh, I think help put some of today's denial in historic context.
3: Well, Barbara, this is fascinating. I can't believe how fast our time has gone, and we're just about out of it, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. Obviously, the book is a great place to start. It's called Industrial Strength Denial, uh, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible by Barbara Freeze. Um, Is I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about about you and and the book and, and other work that you've done and will be doing. Do you have a website?
4: I do. It is barbarafreeze.com, and my last name is spelled F-R-E-E-S-E.
3: Well, Barbara, thank you for spending this time with me today. I appreciate it.
4: Well, thank you, Tom. I've enjoyed our talk.
3: Take care. Again, that was... Um, environmental attorney and a former Minnesota Assistant Attorney General. She is the author of the New York Times notable book, Coal, A Human History, and now the newly published Industrial Strength Denial, Eight Stories of Corporations Defending the Indefensible. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. (laughs)